Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. As we continue this series, we began there at the beginning of January through the book of 1 Thessalonians, one of the earliest writings of the Apostle Paul in a series that I've entitled Living with Hope. The book of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians as well that we'll, Lord willing, get to in the fall is intended to encourage and to inspire hope in the Thessalonians and hope in us in spite of hardships, in spite of difficulties. I've entitled my message today, A Tale of Two Peoples. A Tale of Two Peoples. Now, obviously, that title is paying homage to Charles Dickens' classic work, A Tale of Two Cities. And that book begins with these very familiar words. I'm sure all of you have heard them and read them. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. Those words are particularly poignant in the world in which we're living in today. We can have days and maybe even weeks where we are really up, where we experience a positive vibe, if you will, where we have a, a pleasant outlook on the future and on life. And then just on the turn of a dime, we can experience the weight of uncertainty, the sense of despair. The famous words from Dickens paint this stark contrast, a real tension of life, and it's a tension that we know all too well today. Well, in the four verses we're going to consider from Paul's letter to this small church in Thessalonica, he also paints a stark contrast, a tension, not between two cities, but a tension, a contrast between two distinct peoples. And the two peoples he's referencing are, one, this small but faithful church in Thessalonica, and two, the Jews of the first century who brought such oppression and persecution Upon them. So look with me in your Bibles at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're only going to read four verses this morning and exposit them together. Here's what the Bible says And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God, and opposed all mankind, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Since God's purposes and plan of redemption was first announced all the way back in Genesis 3.15 with what's known as the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, there has been this bittersweet reality about the plan of salvation of God. The sweetness of God's plan is that there has always been a people, a remnant who trusted in God, who believed in the gospel and embraced God's purposes. 
But the bitterness of God's purpose and plan of salvation is that there has always been a people who rejected it. There has always been those who are destined for eternal judgment because of their eternal rejection of salvation. These two groups existed way back then. They existed in Paul's day, and friends, they exist today. Now, as Paul compares and contrasts these two groups, we're going to consider that contrast as well together this morning. The first group he looks at is a people commended. He talks about a people who are to be commended. And once again, Paul begins a section of his letter with thanksgiving, with gratitude. He is once again offering thanksgiving to God for this fledgling church. I say again because he's already expressed it already in this letter. If you'll remember back when we first began this series, the first week we looked at chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, and there he expressed his thanksgiving. Notice how he introduced the letter. He said, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul's thanksgiving for them, it doesn't end there. Because if you flip past chapter 2 into chapter 3, he repeats the sentiment. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? And then as we, he writes his second letter to this small church. In 2 Thessalonians, notice what he says there in chapter 1. He says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So why is Paul thankful for them? Why does he continue to repeat this attitude of gratitude? It's because of all that Paul had gone through. Remember, he, he started this missionary journey in the city of Philippi, a major city. He's opposed there and he's run out of town after a riot ensues. And he goes and makes his way to Thessalonica. He's not there just a very brief time. And another riot comes about. They want to kill him there. And so he has to flee in the middle of the night. He makes his way from there to Berea. And again, same song, third verse. He's attacked again. And in the middle of the night, he's put on a boat and he goes to Athens. Finally, among the intellectual elite, they don't try to kill him, but they laugh him out of town because he's preaching something called the resurrection from the dead. And he ends up in the city of Corinth, which is where 1 Thessalonians was written from. And so after going from Philippi to Thessalonica to Berea and then Athens, now he's in Corinth, this city that is rife with immorality and paganism, he finally gets word from Timothy, his son in the faith. And Timothy brings him a message. Things are going really well in Thessalonica. This church that was planted and formed and established under such duress and hardship, they have taken hold of the gospel and they're living it out faithfully even in the midst of great persecution. So he is thankful. He's got something to thank God about that his work has not been in vain. And as I thought about Paul's repeated expressions of thanksgiving, I had to ask myself a question. Am I thankful? Am I grateful? Not for the blessings that I have in life, the prosperities, the successes, the victories, that we certainly should be thankful for those. 
and not even thankful for the work of salvation God's done in my own life and of sanctification and growth and development, though we certainly should be thankful for that. When's the last time I thanked God for his work in someone else? When's the last time I expressed gratitude to the Lord because of his powerful, profound work in a brother or a sister or, God forbid, another church besides our church? When's the last time we said, thank you, God, for this great work you're doing? I think Paul gives us an example of what this looks like. And he's thankful to God for them for really three things I want to see in the text. First of all, he's thankful for their reception of the Scripture. He commends them because they received the truth. This is the starting point for Paul's thanksgiving for them, and it's really what all of verse 13 communicates. Look at it again. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So Paul is hearkening back to his brief time in the city of Thessalonica. So for three straight Sabbath days, he was in the Jewish synagogue there in that small town. And he was there teaching. He was there explaining. He was there reasoning with them, dialoguing and proving that the Old Testament promises of a Messiah, the Old Testament promises of a Deliverer were fully and completely fulfilled and met in one Jesus of Nazareth. He proclaims to them that Jesus is the Christ. And so as he proclaims this, he is overwhelmed with thanksgiving that they heard the message, they received the message, and they believed the message. He says this is a critical component, that you received it, listen, not just as the words of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. That is a profound reality. Just that phrase. The Word of God. The creator of the cosmos. The breather of galaxies and speaker of stars has given a message in writing to the very apex of His creative work, the human race. We have the Word of God. This is a profound reality. And this truth, this reality of the Word of God, friends, it is the paradigm through which all true Christians interpret life. It is the grid through which all authentic believers view their own lives. It's the paradigm through which we understand and we contemplate the present and the future. We unequivocally and we unreservedly say the Scripture, the Bible, is God's Word. Now let me tell you what that does not mean. It does not mean that the Bible is merely a collection of works recounting the people of God over 1,500 years, though it does that. The, when we say the Bible is the Word of God, we're not simply saying that it is a, a collection of precepts and principles that if followed will bring about great life improvement, though it will. What we are saying is when we say it is the Word of God, it possesses a characteristic and a quality that no other writing, no other oracle throughout the annals of human history contains. And ultimately it's this, final authority. When we say the Bible is the word of God, we mean that it is ultimate 
authority. If you have the opportunity to have gospel conversations with folks, you'll no doubt run across people as I have who will, as you begin to discuss their views and their outlook on life, on morality, on purpose, on meaning of the future of heaven and hell, God, at the end of the day, what you'll eventually hear them say is something like this. Well, that's just what I believe. That, that's just how I see things. As if living for 30 or 40 or even 50 years somehow gives you the foundation and the ultimate authority on all the greatest existential questions of life and meaning. It's the problem of our modern age. Don't you tell me what my truth is. I alone get to be the arbiter of what truth is to me. And I won't tell you what your truth is, except, of course, to say you can't tell me what my truth is. And this mindset, unfortunately, has found its way into the modern church. And so there are many so-called churches being led by some so-called pastors who, for the sake of a distorted view of peace, for a convoluted view of, well, we don't want to make waves, they will not say all that the Bible has to say, and they will not proclaim all that the Bible commands. In fact, notice what the eminently quotable J.C. Ryle said about 150 years ago on this very subject. He said this, Peace without truth is a false peace. It is the very peace of the devil. Unity without the gospel is a worthless unity. It is the very unity of hell. We ought to contend jealously for the truth and to fear the loss of truth more than the loss of peace. To maintain pure truth in the church, we should be ready to make any sacrifice, to hazard peace, to risk dissension and run the chance of division. Never let us be guilty of sacrificing any portion of truth on the altar of peace. We should no more tolerate false doctrine than we would tolerate sin. To regularly hear unscriptural teaching is a serious thing. It is a continual dripping of slow poison into the mind. Let us receive nothing, believe nothing, follow nothing which is not in the Bible nor can be proved by the Bible. See how critical this is? There has to be ultimate authority. There has to be fundamental truth now how can we say the bible is that authority how can we say the scripture is that word well this message is not intended to be an apologetic on the validity of the bible on the the divine nature of the bible on the inspiration by god of the bible but we can look just right in the text and we can see exactly a proof of the bible's authority it's in the last phrase of verse 13 the word of God, which is at work in you believers. This is a fundamental and powerful proof that validates the authority of the Bible. It shows the Bible's divine, supernatural origin because it has transformational power. This is exactly what Jesus prayed for in the high priestly prayer of John 17. He prayed for his disciples in that upper room, and he prayed by extension for his disciples in this room. What did he pray in John 17? He said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus revealed in that short sentence 
the fundamental resource we have to bring about life sanctification, life transformation, life change. What is it? It's our engagement with the Word. That's what brings change. And I would point out, Paul qualifies who gets to experience this life change. Paul points out who gets to experience this sanctification, this transformation. He says it's at work in you believers. Friends, the Bible has no transformational power in those who don't believe it. The power to sanctify is only for those who believe. In Psalm 19, the psalmist gives a summary of the transformational work of the Word. Notice how the psalmist put it. He said, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Aren't you thankful for that? The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Friends, the Word of God revives us. The Word of God makes us wise who are simple folk otherwise. The Word of God brings us joy even in the darkness of the night. And the Word of God brings about an enlightenment to our lives that cannot be there otherwise. It is transforming in power as evidence in their own lives. But that really leads right to the second thing that Paul is thankful for in these Thessalonian Christians. And that is the next one, their reflection of the saints their reflection of the saints. Look again at verse 14. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. You see, friends, the way they lived their lives as new believers was a reflection of the testimony they had heard about of the believers in the Judean churches. They imitated those churches in their own personal commitment to the Lord, in their own faithfulness to the gospel, even in the midst of persecution and trial. Now, it's unlikely that any of the members of the Thessalonian church had traveled all the way to Jerusalem, all the way to Judea, to kind of do a, a seminar with the Judean churches. It's unlikely they got to see what was happening in the Judean churches, but they understood and they knew by way of their testimony. You see, in the first century, Judea was a Roman province in the area of land known as Palestine. The very first Christian church, the first Christian assembly, was in Jerusalem, birthed on the day of Pentecost. And from that church, other churches were planted, other local congregations were founded, and they existed with great hostility upon them. And so by the time the Thessalonian church is planted and founded, these congregations in Judea, well, they're very mature, and they have been matured because of their perseverance through persecution. And so the Thessalonians had heard of their testimony and just what the churches in Judea were doing and how they proved faithful to the Lord. And so they began to, Paul says, imitate them. They began to reflect them, to replicate their characteristics. And this tells us something. Friends, if we see churches that are faithful to the Lord, if we see churches that God is doing something in them, it is altogether right and it's altogether appropriate to say, hey, let's try to imitate what they're doing. Let's consider how they're trying to be faithful to the Lord and see if we can adopt some of those things in our church. I remember very shortly after I became pastor here, I was just in a casual conversation with some members here of the church, and I was talking about some of the initiatives and some of the purposes we had that we were pursuing at that time, and, and I made this statement. You know, in my experience at such and such church, one of the things we saw work was, and then immediately I was cut off, 
This is Full Cow Valley Baptist Church. We don't do things like that around here. What pride. What arrogance, right? If we can learn anything from any other church, we, like the Thessalonians, should be imitators of them. Want to do what they're doing. But here's another way to think about it. Are we as a church, a people that other churches would want to imitate? Are we doing things? Do we have a, an anticipation of God's movement in our midst that other churches would say, oh, we'd like to emulate that? Do we have an anticipation and a reverence for God's presence and a submission to his word in such a way that other congregations would say, let's pattern ourselves after Lookout Valley Baptist Church? If not, why not? And just an aside here, point of practical theology that I think needs to be mentioned, Paul mentions here, churches in Judea. That's plural. He's talking about individual local assemblies, local congregations. We do believe in the theological reality of what's called the universal church, sometimes called the capital C church. And that universal church is made up of all believers throughout all ages in all places. But we also believe in the importance, in the primacy of the local church. And this is another unfortunate phenomenon of the modern age. There are those who profess to be Christian. There are those who profess to be believers in Jesus Christ, who profess to be saved, to use that language, who have little to no regard for life or involvement in a local church. You need to know the Bible knows nothing of that type of an experience. The Bible knows nothing of a professing Christian who says, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I got saved way back then, but has zero interest in life in a local church. In fact, just the opposite. And if those who study the trends and tendencies of churches in the modern era, those who uh, give their lives to see church health and church tendencies are to be believed, there is a general sense among them, as I read, that when we are done with this unfortunate season known as a pandemic and we get back to quote-unquote normal the idea or the belief or the prediction is that many who before the pandemic had a scant uh, regard for church involvement you'll never see them again they will fall away completely but let me just tell you as your pastor i would rather have a church half full with authentic believers in jesus than a church filled to the gills with those who only give lip service to their king and check off a religious box. And that really leads right to the next thing Paul commends this church for. And a reason for his gratitude to God, their resolve in suffering. Their resolve in suffering. Notice verse 14. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did, the churches in Judea, from the Jews. Friends, if folks aren't resolved to stay committed to Christ and committed to his church through the mild inconveniences of a pandemic, they will never stay committed when severe persecution hits. After the stoning death of Stephen, the persecution and the atrocities brought against the churches in Judea was severe. It reached a fevered pitch. Apostles Pastors, elders, and deacons were being arrested and jailed left and right. The apostle James was murdered. And one of the main instigators 
of the hostilities against the Jewish Christian churches in Judea was none other than this highly regarded and very intelligent Pharisee, Saul of Tarsus. Of course, Saul of Tarsus was met on the road to Damascus, the road he was traveling with letters from the high priest to go arrest more of these Christians. He was met on that road by Jesus Christ himself. He was knocked off his high horse and was confronted with his own rebellious lost condition. And there, he surrendered to Christ as Lord and Savior. God did an incredible work of conversion in his life. And he would then be used to plant churches in Asia Minor and into Europe. And now Paul is hearing of the Thessalonians' resolve and commitment to the Lord even in the midst of severe persecution, just like the churches in Judea had demonstrated under his severe persecution of them. And the fact is, this small fledgling church in Thessalonica was birthed in hostility, was birthed in persecution. Paul and his companions left Thessalonica under duress because of their brief time there experienced such intense persecution against them. And the indication is here that the church without them there is continuing to be faithful even under this hostility, this resolve, this perseverance. It was evidence of their genuine conversion. And therefore, for Paul, it was a source of great thanksgiving in his heart. He was grateful to God. Why? Because they had chosen to go through the narrow gate. They had determined to walk the narrow way they picked up their cross and they followed Jesus. Paul was thankful to God for them because they were a people to be commended. But then he turns his attention, secondly, to a people condemned. A people condemned. It's almost as if when Paul identifies the source of the suffering that was being experienced in the churches, namely the Jewish people of that region, he goes into something of a diatribe against the Jewish people. In fact, there have been some who read verses 14 through 16 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and they conclude Paul was an anti-Semite. And there have been very confused people throughout the ages who have used Paul's words here to bring validity to their own anti-Semitism. You've probably heard the word anti-Semitism or being an anti-Semite. What is this? It's in general a term that refers to someone who has hostility or anger towards the Jewish people, Semites, simply because of the fact that they're Jewish. Anti-Semitism means suspicion of the Jewish people, even hatred for the Jewish people, discrimination against them because of their ethnicity and because of their heritage. It's a very, very serious charge to be leveled against someone. And let me say, before I say anything else, we emphatically reject anti-Semitism. We reject it, not because it's just politically incorrect. We reject it for theological reasons. We reject it for moral reasons. Any prejudice against any people because of their race, because of their ethnicity, is a serious, condemnable, heinous sin. We reject it outright. Paul was not an anti-Semite. And I'm going to give you a couple of reasons real quickly why he was not. First of all, Paul was a Semite himself. <laughs> he was Jewish. How could he be accused of being an anti-Semite when he was a Semite? He was wholly and completely Jewish. Secondly, think about this. 
We know the Apostle Paul was not an anti-Semite simply because of what he wrote in Romans 9, verse 3. He wrote about the Jewish people as a whole. Notice what he said. He said, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. What's he saying? I pray that I could spend eternity in hell if it would mean that the Jewish people would be saved. I would venture a guess that most of us have prayed for loved ones, friends, family members who are lost. But I would also venture a guess that probably none of us have said, God send me to hell if it'll mean saving this person. That's what Paul prayed for the Jewish people. Further, everything he's accusing the Jewish people of doing in these three verses, he's done himself. He stands condemned by his own actions and attitudes. So this conversation is not theoretical. It's not distant or detached. He knows it up close and personal. They are him. He is them. So this is not hatred for a race or an ethnicity. This is not hatred of a Jewish people. Here it is. It's a pointing out of the consequence of unbelief. Friends, that's the unpardonable sin. Unbelief in the gospel. What Paul's doing here finally, is exactly what all of the Old Testament prophets did. Think about the Old Testament prophets, particularly the, the later ones, the minor prophets. They loved the Jewish people so much, they brought a message of rebuke, even at great injury and harm to themselves. They risked their own lives to call out the wickedness and evil that was among the Jewish people. There are three things in particular Paul points out in his condemnation of the Jews of his day. First of all, he points out their persecution of the prophets. Their persecution of the prophets. Notice again how Paul describes this persecution. They killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. Amazingly, in a clear and stark contrast between the Thessalonian believers, he points out how the Jews responded to the word of God. They drove it out. Those spokesmen for God who came to them, they killed them. They killed the prophets. Paul points out the experience of the prophets in the Old Testament era. You've heard the expression, don't kill the messenger. The Jewish people killed the messenger. The prophets, those who spoke to them. We have record in Jeremiah chapter 26, 1 Kings 19, 2 Chronicles chapter 24. That is, God would send prophets to the Jewish people or to their leaders. They would kill them with the sword. They would stone them with stones. Even Jesus called out the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders of his day. Notice what he said in Matthew 23. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murder the prophets. And Jesus' condemnation of them proved that they murdered the greatest prophet of all time, Jesus himself. If you'll remember after Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, was brought, had Jesus brought to him under these accusations that he needed to be executed, needed to be crucified, he thoroughly examined Jesus and discovered nothing in him worthy of death. So he came before the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people, and he did something and said something quite unique. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, 
He took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. Then he released to them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. What were they saying? His blood be on us and our children. We take full responsibility as, as the Jewish people for the killing of this man you say is innocent. Let his blood be on us. And then, as Paul says, they drove us out. He's referencing, again, their time in Thessalonica when the Jewish people oppressed and persecuted Paul and his missionary team. What's the end of verse 15 say about their judgment? They displease God and oppose all mankind. How do they displease God? How do they oppose all mankind? By this next thing we see in the passage, their prevention of speech. Their prevention of speech. The text says they displease God and oppose all mankind. How? By hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. I've mentioned before here, and it bears repeating, that human rights that we believe in and that we enjoy and that we experience, they're not granted to us or endowed to us by governments. They're granted to us and endowed to us by God, by virtue of the fact that He is our Creator. Government's role is to recognize those God-granted rights and protect those God-granted rights. And one of the fundamental rights our United States government was established to recognize and protect was the right of freedom of speech, right? We know that right, that basic human fundamental right, is under assault today. But this is not the first time in history the human right of speaking what you believe and by saying that, we mean, I may not agree with what you say, but I will defend and contend your right to say it. We know this is not the first time it's been assaulted. The Jews of Paul's day wanted to shut down his speech. You see, it wasn't enough for them to reject the gospel of Jesus. They didn't want anybody else to hear about it and have the opportunity to make that own choice themselves, to accept or reject. And friends, this same Religious intolerance was also experienced in the Jerusalem church as well as they sought to shut down the message of the early Christians. In fact, notice how the book of Acts describes it, particularly with Peter and John. The Sanhedrin says to them in Acts 5, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So throughout church history, there have been those who have sought to shut down speech, to hinder the proclamation of the gospel. That's how much they hate it. They hate it. Because of that, Paul points to this final thing about the Jews of his day. Let us see their punishment that is deserved. He says there, So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. See, the end result of the Jewish people's rejection of Jesus as Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, is they have filled up the measure of their sins. This is language that's used in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's repeated in Genesis 15. The Bible describes the Amorites as filling up the measure of God's wrath against them. 
The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah filled up the measure of God's wrath and anger against them. It's an expression that simply lets us know God has a limit. There's only so much God will take. Is God long-suffering? Yes. Is God patient? Yes. But he will not strive with man forever. There is an end to his patience. There is an end to his long-suffering when judgment will come. And Paul says, wrath has come upon them at last. He speaks of it in the past tense. Paul is so certain that these unbelieving Jews in the first century will experience the condemnation, the wrath of God. He speaks of it in the past tense. Friends, Jesus also warned the Jewish people of his day with several warnings. I want to show you just a few of them. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on him, it will crush him. That's judgment. Two chapters later in Matthew, uh, these words of Jesus are recorded. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate pronouncement of judgment profound pronouncements and think of this after jesus has been arrested by the jewish leaders after he's been flogged after he's had his beard plucked after he's been punched in the face after the the crown of thorns is embedded in his skull he's carrying his own cross up to the place of crucifixion called galgatha and he falls down under the weight of that cross in just sheer exhaustion once Simon of Cyrene, who's a bystander, is compelled to carry Christ's cross the rest of the way to the place of crucifixion. But notice how uh, the Bible describes this process after that. The Bible says this, And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me but weep for yourselves and for your children. What a strange thing to say. Here he is, beaten, bloodied, and bruised, headed to die on a cross, and he says, don't cry for me, Jerusalem. But what does he say? Look at verse 29. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? This Jesus, meek, mild, tender, and kind, gives these stern warnings to the people of Israel. The same kind of warning that Paul gave to them as well. These are warnings that are intended to invoke in them a response of repentance and faith in Christ. And I would remind us just who is writing this. This condemnation of the Jewish people. It's the Pharisee of Pharisees, the Jew of Jews, Saul of Tarsus, the one who opposed God's plan and sought to prevent the speech of the church being extended to others. That is until Jesus invaded his life. That is until Christ met him on the road to Damascus and he realized he was indeed the true Messiah of Israel. And as a result, this man who once opposed 
God's plan and God's gospel with all the energy within him was now giving his life. This man who was once under the wrath and condemnation of God and justly so would later go on to write, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Today, as in Paul's day, there is a tale of two peoples. There are two groups in this world today. The choice between the blessing of God and the cursing of God's wrath and judgment is still there for those who obey the word and those who reject it. And those who reject the word reject the work of Jesus, his son. What is the work of Jesus? He came to this earth and he lived a sinless life. He was the spotless Lamb of God. What is the work of Jesus? This innocent, pure Lamb of God took upon his own body the substitutionary death, the vicarious death for sinners like you and like me. What is the work of Jesus? On the third day, he was resurrected from the dead. He is alive so that he can now give new life to all who trust in him. And friends, those who reject the word of God, which communicates to us the work of Jesus, his life, death, burial, and resurrection, they will suffer eternal wrath and condemnation. The question this morning, which one are you? Which one are you? Are you a believer in the word of God or have you rejected the work of Jesus? And as we close, how can we as a church, look out Valley Baptist Church, be a people who are faithful even in difficulty and hardship? What can we learn from this church in Thessalonica? Two things, and I'll close with this. First, we must recognize the origin of the Bible. Friends, when we come to the scripture, we're not coming to an ordinary book. It is, has supernatural origin, has divine origin. It's the message of the Creator. There is no higher court of appeal for anyone, anywhere, than the Bible. So we recognize the origin of the Bible. Secondly, we must obey the instruction of the Bible. It, it, the scripture only works effectively in those who submit to its authority those who submit to its word. We believe the Bible is inerrant. We believe the Bible is infallible. But do we believe it is sufficient for every area of our lives? We must obey the instruction of the Bible. And that leads to my last thought. As we affirm the truthfulness of Scripture with our lips, we must also affirm the trustworthiness of Scripture with our lives.